that's why I did AmeriCorps Vista and literally had a salary of about $10,000 when I graduated college. Like that's how important it was to me. (laughs) I could have done, I could have done multiple other jobs I could have applied for. And I would have definitely been making, um, at least, I would at least think at least 30 grand when I graduated (laughs) college. And I went with a $10,000 job because of how important integrate dialogue was to me and staying connected to this idea of social justice of, of, um, just bettering this world. And so, you know, to me, it's not always about the money, but it's about Mm -hmm. the fulfillment. It's about kind of where, where are you growing as a person? What can you give? Welcome to the EduPunks Podcast. I am your host, Craig Bideman, here for another week of fun conversations with one of my friends in the world of education. Today, I have my former cohort colleague, uh, Victoria Mullaney, chatting with me. We actually had brunch over the weekend, and I was like, hey, you should come on my podcast because you do some really interesting uh, research, and you've had a really interesting life. And here we are. We're having this chat. Victoria is a doctoral student currently at UMass Amherst, where we both did our graduate degrees in higher ed administration. That was a lot of fun. We'll get into that a little bit in the conversation. Victoria does a lot of work specifically around um, multiracial students and student identity development and looking at how to better support those students and professionals in their work and in their lives and in their education. Now, before we get all to all that, just want to say thanks to everyone who checked out the climate change episode. It is it's it started a really good conversation. People were reaching out to me, messaging me, telling me that they were really glad that I brought in two very different people who very much cared a whole lot about climate change and were coming at it from a very different direction perspectives i'm really glad to hear that that sort of feedback that makes me feel really great and shout out to my friends at presence who uh named us one of their favorite new resources for professional development in education i mean i've only been doing this uh since the beginning of june so three months we've been doing this podcast now and folks are catching on we just reached uh over 600 subscribers and i feel like that's a really cool number I did not think that that many people would give a shit. So thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for listening along. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Uh, suggest the podcast. Take their phone and subscribe on their phone for them so that maybe one day they're just checking out their podcast and they're like, oh, what's this popping up? Maybe I'll give this a listen. And then they'll hear some cool education stuff and some cool tunes, which today all of our tunes are from bands on Sound and Tones record. Which records, which is in uh, Western Massachusetts in North Adams, based out of there. Uh, my buddy Chris Hotman runs it. Uh, I haven't hyped them since like our second episode, so I'm really glad to uh, be playing some of their tunes on today's episode. And that first uh, song that you heard is by Darling Valley. That was the intro, and you'll hear them throughout the episode, and then later we'll hear, we'll hear from another artist as well. 
And I don't really have a whole lot else to say. Just rate, subscribe, tell your friends about the podcast. That'd be really tight. And yeah, let's get to this conversation with Victoria because y'all are going to learn today a whole lot because I always learn from Victoria when we hang out and when we talk and truly one of my most favorite people that I've ever met here in Massachusetts and one of my very good friends and someone that I trust and care so much about and I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation now. Let's get to it. So I'm sitting here digitally with my good friend, Victoria Mullaney. How are you, Victoria? I'm doing well. How about you, Craig? I am doing pretty okay. I'm kind of stuffy. I don't know if you can hear that, but uh, I got sick over the weekend and I am not terribly happy about it. That's a bummer. (laughs) Especially when, you know, school starts tomorrow. (laughs) Yep. All across the state, for sure, and across the nation. So. Yep. And normally, like when I was teaching high school, like the beginning of October is when everyone got sick. Like you let the the germs build up for about a month and then everyone got sick. Right. And that's when like subs start getting used a lot more. But I'm not all about this being sick as school starts thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I oh, well. feel better soon. So I, I do too. I've been like drinking DayQuil all day. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm a health expert, uh, specialist. I, I am not just drinking DayQuil. I am not that stupid. <laughs> well, Victoria, I'm really glad that you have taken some time to chat with me today before you get started with more school uh, tomorrow and this week. Uh, I know a lot about you. We go back from uh, grad school, UMass Amherst. You were one of the first people I met when I moved out here. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It seems like short and long ago at the same time. Yeah. It was just over four years ago. Yeah. And now here we are. Weird, right? Very weird. <laughs> Very strange. Um, but I'd love you to tell folks a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, hi, everyone. I'm Victoria, as Craig mentioned. Um, my gender pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I currently live in Amherst, Massachusetts, but I grew up in South Florida in a town called Port St. Lucie, uh, not too far away from Palm Beach, uh, Florida. And I lived there all the way up until I went to college. And so right now I've been in the Northeast for about 10 years, but I originally came to Northeast for, for undergrad where I went to Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. It's about two hours from Amherst, Mass. And it's a private liberal arts college where I I just like thoroughly enjoyed my college experience. I, I majored in English and Spanish. And I also did an, a dance minor where I had a lot of arts background as a young, um, a young dancer. I did classical ballet. And so I brought a lot of those interests to college um, as a classical ballet dancer for many years. And uh, I just enjoyed my college experience so much that eventually, three years after I graduated from college, I made my way to really uh, committing to getting my master's degree at UMass Amherst. But in the interim, I worked professionally in different areas in the nonprofit field. I was an AmeriCorps VISTA member, which is um, VISTA stands for Volunteer in Service to America. And I committed to that when I uh, finished my undergraduate in 2010 at Skidmore and found my way to supporting uh, communities 
in poverty. And that I spent two years doing that in the capital region of Albany, New York, and definitely learned a ton from that experience. But I think all of that helps me in how I talk a little bit about myself, just because of my interests and my values that connect to social justice, that connect to education and connect to human lives and helping them better themselves and empowering themselves. So that's a little bit about me. Um, but I'm currently, I should mention, a current, I'm a doctoral student in uh, the PhD program in higher education at UMass Amherst in the Department of Educational Policy Research and Administration. My concentration, <laughs> it's a long-winded answer, is in higher education. So I'm looking forward to defending what's called my comprehensive exam soon, which we're going to talk about a little later this week. Um, so I'll be moving up, hopefully, in the ranks to a PhD candidate shortly. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more, Craig, about uh, the next next questions. Yeah. Um, I actually forgot that you like you came in, you didn't come in straight from undergrad, neither did I. No. Like, we were a couple of the older ones in the cohort. Um, and I totally spaced on the fact that you were AmeriCorps Vista. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what 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 got you involved in that? Yeah, so it really stemmed from, I'll talk more about this maybe later too, but intergroup dialogue and it's a pedagogy and um, area in higher education research that's being used to help students understand social justice and oppression and power and privilege. And so when I was in college and I really got immersed in this program called uh, intergroup dialogue, that really shaped and transformed my like worldview on just everything in life. Um, my social identities, recognizing where I was in the world. And so because of that experience, which I was immersed in for like two, three years, um, I knew when I graduated college, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Like many college grads, I knew, I thought I wanted to do law school and I was kind of gearing myself to do that. Um, but the AmeriCorps VISTA program was a great in between space for me as I was a young professional trying to figure out like what I wanted to do next in life. And so AmeriCorps Vista, my first year I worked in um, Albany and Troy, New York, working with women who were incarcerated in a local Rensselaer County jail, I developed a what's a mentoring program for women coming out of the New York state prison system and um, the local county jail and helping them connect with women in the community who wanted to um, help them just make some positive connections in their life to make sure that hopefully we wouldn't have any of our women recidivate or return right back to the county jail or prison system, which tends to happen um, more often than we'd like uh, because you kind of go back to nest your community where you may have had some, um, you know, other things popping up for you in your life, addiction, um, maybe not the most positive environment to break away from some of that. And when you have the stigma of being in jail or incarcerated in the state prison system, it's hard to, um, you know, reconnect yourself and, and stay empowered to stay positive. And so the goal with this mentoring program was to do that and uh, worked closely with my supervisor, Jack Simeone, who's currently still the chief program officer at Catholic Charities in Albany Diocese. And that was a really interesting experience my first year. And then my second year, I did a VISTA leader position um, where that one was focused more on uh, training 
educational opportunities for another group of AmeriCorps VISTA members. We had about 25 in the area that were spread out across all these different types of nonprofits. And so all of my interest in learning, training, working with um, recently graduated uh, college students like started my my background there. So AmeriCorps VISTA is an awesome program. I, I would say anyone who's interested in checking out more about it, um, my experience, even what I just named, is nothing like than maybe the next person who's done AmeriCorps VISTA. It's all very individual depending on the program, the community needs, and um, you know where you do your work. Yeah, I'm uh, hearing you talk about the work you did specifically, it kind of surprises me you didn't continue through like going to law school. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like that's that would have been a more um, natural progression. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you went the education route. Yeah. Did you have a decision that you had to make there? I think a lot of it had to do with the timing. Like when I graduated, okay. uh, when I graduated college, it was 2010, like that huge recession economically happened. There were a lot of people I spoke with that were going right into law school and were uncertain about their future. And like funding had a lot to do with it too. Like taking out more loans and educational debt. Like I, I kind of really waffled with like wanting to do that and take out even more loans when, you know, I did try, I did do the LSATs. Um, I didn't feel like I had a competitive enough score to really get scholarships, even though I was a great like undergraduate student and had a lot going for me in that regard. I still wasn't certain that law was going to be like my pathway. And so my third year out of working, um, my third year out of college is when I worked in a diversity programming office at my alma mater at Skidmore. I was a diversity fellow and I did program coordination for a center. So my whole year was geared towards working with college students in cultural programming, um, troubleshooting, event planning, developing community-wide, campus-wide events. So I did that my entire year running around um, going and sitting on committees, uh, writing grants for programming, meeting with different faculty members, trying to really bridge across the gap between diversity programming and not making it just so like secondary to the experience. Like my goal in that office and working with my supervisor who now, former supervisor, Mariel Martin, she's now the um, associate director, no, not associate director. She is actually the associate dean, excuse me, of campus life at Skidmore College. So she's um, been promoted up. And I think in that role, like I had such an awesome time. It was such a passion and love of mine, that job, that it was only a one-year contract. It was a temp contract, which is why it ended. Um, I realized that this was a better fit for me. Instead of going the law school route, I went into the education and master's route. Um, and so that felt more right for me at the time. I mean, I'm still very interested in law. I'm still very interested in the criminal justice system. Um, I wouldn't say never or as far as more education cause I'm kind of a nerd, but <laughs> it's not necessarily like, uh, the biggest in, like focus right now for me. I think that there's ways I can connect my PhD to this work, um, and, and still have an impact. So awesome. Well, one of the main the main reason I wanted to bring you on is to talk about um, uh, multiracial student identities and the way that your work and your research and the networks that you're working in are 
um, doing work to uh, support those students better in higher education. And I wanted to get to start off, just get your experience growing up as a multiracial child and now how you how you feel those experiences have uh, impacted you as an adult. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk about this all day, every day, because this is like what I think <laughs> about what I what keeps me up kind of at night, thinking about different ways to conceptualize these topics, and both because of personal experiences, but then also because of just research in general. So I think I'll first start by just defining a couple terminology, because terminology in the words, because language is important when we talk about race um, in general. And so I... I, when I'm talking about myself, I talk about multiracial as the terminology that I use to describe my racial background. And, and that's defined, the Pew, the Pew Research Center did a huge uh, report in 2015 that uh, has a lot more information on just the general American multiracial population. But when I define multiracial, it's really describing the individual with two or more racial heritages and whose parents are from different ethnic backgrounds. And so that's my experience. Um, there are a lot of other terms that people who uh, identify with being multiracial, biracial, mixed race, um, can identify with these different terms and use them interchangeably. Um, so I use multiracial because I feel that it's the best way to kind of describe broadly a population of people in the United States that have more than one racial background. And so that's what I identify more with because that's my that's also my personal experience. There's, it's not just two races, it's multiple when I think about my, my cultural ethnic upbringing. So to explain a little bit more about that, like, so my dad is, um, last name is Mulaney. People are probably like, well, oh, I wonder what that last name is. It's, it's an Irish last name, um, surname. And his family, my dad's family grew up in Boston outside of, um, the South shore and in, in Hull, in Hull, Massachusetts. And so he came from a very Irish, uh, Catholic family and so white family and that was his upbringing in the Northeast and my mom is originally from Trinidad and Tobago and it's off the coast of Venezuela it's the southernmost Caribbean island um, it's a very ethnically mixed island it's actually one of the most which some people use the word multicultural um, island most diverse that uh, in the Caribbean island nations and my own side of my mom's family is also mixed as well ethnically um, my grandfather has Indian heritage and my grandmother had um, mixed Spanish African roots. And so um, by nature growing up, I didn't realize my mom was mixed until like years later until I conceptualized my own identity and background. And so um, I always knew I had different experiences, if you will, growing up because people would, depending on which parent I was with, if I was out in the grocery store with just my dad or someone in my class as a child growing up was meeting my dad for the first time, they would question like me and say, is that your father? Cause I have more, um, I'm brown, I have brown skin, brown hair, brown eyes, very proud to be a multiracial person and an American. But, um, a lot of times if I'm with my dad who has white skin, darker hair and bluish hazel eyes, people are like, uh, I don't get, they don't immediately see the connection there. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's by assumptions. That's by sometimes internal bias. It's by people not necessarily connecting the dots here. When you see my mom, most people think, Oh yeah, that's gotta be her mom, you know? And so 
you know, it's just, that's, that's the thing. You grew up with people not knowing who your family is and then they realize this, that's your family, right? Or over time, um, you know, depending on which side of the family I was with, people negating and saying, oh, that's not your white cousin. That can't be your cousin. Um, I don't see any resemblance there. You know, just stuff like that. That can, over time, be kind of hurtful when people just don't believe you. And so, um, you know, at the end at the end of it, you know, I think it doesn't necessarily bother me every single day but over time as I grew up I did question my parents a lot about like why are people asking me this or why are people saying things about us as a family or why don't they believe me when I say you know this is my grandmother this is my grandfather depending on which side of the family I'm talking about um so you know those are some of the things growing up as a child but I also think it wasn't always the center of my experience as well like I kind of just lived my life and had a had a I would say an overall great childhood experience with siblings, with my, with my three other siblings. I have a fraternal twin, an older brother and a younger sister. And so my parents, they did a great job just like being able to be there and to answer the, answer the questions, but it wasn't always the center of my experience. And I didn't critically examine, I would say me being multiracial until college happened. So, Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Did you, I know that you've gone to Trinidad and Tobago a few times since I've known you. How early did you start going on those trips? Oh, I, when I was like six months old, I was there. Oh gosh. <laughs> so, so you've kind of, you've kind of always been steeped in that culture then. Yeah. My mom, you know, she's very close to her family despite the distance. And over the years, I mean, I don't know. I've been there at least 15, 20 times over the years. Dang. Um, I mean, visiting my grandparents, my cousins, aunts, uncles, you know, it's, it's home. It's a second home, you know? That's so cool. That's something like I have no concept of. (laughs) And I I am, I am like technically multiracial as well because my biological mother is Mexican and Native American and my biological father is like Irish and German and a bunch of other things, but like I look very white. Yeah. And I was adopted by very white people, but like my two biological brothers look like me, but are brown. Like we have the same mother and father, but I just got the white side of everything. And Mm so it's, I've never really had any sort of connection to like the other parts of my culture. Yeah. And that's not, and your experience, even what you shared. It's not uncommon when we talk to um, different folks who are transracially adopted, too, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, or in general, just not connected as closely in tied to their maybe ethnic or cultural origins in their family. And so, you know, I'd encourage you to explore that a bit more if you felt like you could, you know. I want um, to. Yeah, because it's it's an important part of like knowing who you are, right? Yeah. Or knowing where you come from, not necessarily who you are, but where you come from. I think the that's an important past. Um, but but even still, I mean, even though growing up in Trinidad, not growing up in Trinidad, but going growing up visiting Trinidad, I should say, um, you know, that that helped me be very proud of being uh, Caribbean American and um, being closely connected to my mom's side of the family and just being proud of who I am and, and where I came from and. And, you know, my family's, my dad's side as well, you know, just growing up with them too. So I, I learned a lot from having a, uh, a culturally mixed race, uh, 
family that was very loving, very supportive, um, and just themselves, you know. So it wasn't always the, the conversation at, at the dinner table, but it was part of, you know, how I grew up. And so college made me think more a lot <laughs> about my identity, for sure. Oh, gosh. As it does. As yes. it usually, usually does. Yep. Um. Now, as an adult, and you are also in a, a multiracial relationship, how how do you how do you uh, what's your experience like navigating that as well? Um, yeah, so I consider more of a relationship as like an interracial relationship. Okay, good. I'm glad that I have yeah. more words to use here. Interracial. All right. Yeah. So because so although I I do have white heritage. Um, you know, I'm, I, I navigate the world as a multiracial woman of color. I mean, that's yeah. why I name myself. Um, and so my, my partner, um, is a white male, uh, grew up, he grew up in, in the U S in the Northeast and, you know, he very much navigates the world as a white male, you know, and his family has some Irish heritage, um, English as well. Um, but you know, for him, a lot of our initial, conversations when we were dating had a lot to do with race, had a lot to do with feeling like, you know, will I be accepted in his side of the family? Do they understand kind of where I'm coming from as far mm -hmm. as my family and my cultural background, upbringing, um, what it means to be for my parents, not necessarily for them to understand my parents, but just understand kind of how I, how I was brought up. And so, um, I think a lot more it's, in our conversations, yes, we've had our longer conversations about race and how important that is. But we also, I think, now more have conversations about power and privilege um, hmm. and kind of how, as a couple, how can we navigate that? We don't have children and maybe in the future we hope to have children. But um, I think a lot of the conversation as a couple, as we've matured, if you will, as a couple and kind of deepened our commitment to one another, it's been more about how can we influence each other to become not only better people together, um, you know, stronger, but then also kind of how can we use our privilege and our power in our own networks and fields to hopefully improve and support people around us who have less power and privilege. Um, hmm. And so for, for me, that's influencing him a little bit when it comes to talking more about critical race theory and like talking more about oppression and what's happening in this world right now with um just so much craziness happening <laughs> with, mm -hmm. with you know the current administration but then also just like stuff with education um and different backgrounds and identities and and how does his how can he use his voice in different arenas and how can i use my voice so that's that's kind of how we talk about it all right, we're going to take a real quick break from this chat with Victoria to just quickly hype uh, my nonprofit, actually. I haven't hyped it in a little bit, but it's called The Art of Survival. And what we do is my partner Katie Ham and I, among with our team of artists, we make art for trauma survivors. So people who might have experienced sexual assault or living through some sort of mental illness or a chronic disease or something that has impacted their lives to the point where it has changed them in some manner, shape, or form. And we want to give some form of healing to these people, so we make them free pieces of art. And it's amazing the types of stories that we get almost every day. And this summer we took a little bit of a break 
just to kind of clear our heads and re- restructure our vision for the project. And now we're, we used to have a calendar that had topics every single month. And now we're just opening it up to the whole broad spectrum of trauma. Not a whole lot of uplifting stories. There is a lot of hope in some of the stories, but there is a lot of sadness and a lot to learn from a lot of struggles that people have gone through, but also the perseverance and beauty that these people share about uh, how, how their trauma and surviving it has given them so much hope for the world. So if you'd like to learn more, please go to artissurvival.com or find us at underscore art of survival on any social media. And you can learn all about how to get involved with us, how to share a story, or even how to be one of our artists. We'd love to have you make some art for us. Yeah, I think that's about it. Now let's get back to this chat. Can you explain the work that you're doing with the ACPA Multiracial Network? Is that the proper, it's yeah, so MC, CMA, right? Yeah, CMA. So CMA. the ACPA, so ACPA stands for American College Personnel Association. Mm-hmm. It's a organization, a nonprofit founded outside of, um, well, inside of Washington, D.C. And CMA stands for the Coalition of Multicultural Affairs. And that is one of the five networks Um and so the best way to describe it is that ACPA broadly really is connecting um, to policy issues, research, advocacy, uh, best practices in higher education, both in the U.S. context and internationally. But the multiracial network is connected to this, the Coalition for Multicultural Affairs that helps to uh, raise awareness and consciousness of uh, race issues in higher education. And so we sit under the Coalition for Multicultural Affairs because we, um, the multiracial network, strives to help um, create and like foster inclusive spaces within our national association, ACPA, and then also broadly across the country looking at student staff professionals who identify as multiracial or multiethnic or transracial adoptees, and we do different intentional educational initiatives. We engage in critical dialogue, community building, and just really help to support creating institutional change across campuses within the larger ACPA organization. So it's a little bit about who we are and what we do. Yeah, and it's relatively new, correct? Actually, no. We've been around for 15 years we're celebrating. Okay, all Um, right. So we haven't, we've, uh, we're one of the youngest, um, networks inside of the coalition actually some of the other networks like the latino latinx network um there's also the native aboriginal indigenous network um there's also the pan-african network Uh, those three organizations celebrated 30 years with acpa last year um we're celebrating our 15th this year in march and so i've been involved with MRN or the multiracial network um, for about five years. And that really started when I was in that program coordinator fellowship position at mm. Skidmore College. And so that's how I got introduced to them. Um, cool. And I've been involved since, but my roles have switched over the years. And so I was the chair of the multiracial network last year and I've, I stay on, it's a, it's a three-year role. So you kind of rotate in and out. And so um, this year, I'm technically the outgoing chair, but I'm helping the current chair, Michael Dixon, and um, Rob Kanicki uh, transition into this role and help them lead 
us together lead the uh, multiracial network. So nice. And y'all put on like conventions and stuff too, correct? Yeah. So we go every year. ACPA has a convention, a national convention. Um, this year it, it is in Houston, Texas. And so that's been interesting given the, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've been looking out for that too. <laughs> the impact and the tragedy, uh, of hurricane Harvey in Houston. But, um, you know, I, I've been kind of waiting to see what's happening with, with ACPA to kind of understand a little bit more, but we did get a message from our current president, um, Dr. Stephen Quay saying that the area surrounding the downtown Houston area, at least where the convention would be held was not impacted by the floodwaters. And so they still aim to host convention and a lot of the efforts that they're doing. Um, we want to raise funding for, um, you know, folks who have survived this hurricane and uh, as someone who's also experienced multiple hurricanes growing up in South Florida, I mean, nothing ever, none of my experiences ever compare to the devastation that's happened there with the floodwaters and the complete loss of homes. I mean, that's just devastating. Um, and so we're hoping with MRN to be able to raise some funds to also donate to, um, you know, communities impacted there as well. So, and members. So, you know, it's, it's ACPA, I think is really exciting and in great ways though, because it's helped me professionally develop, um, as a higher education professional. And also as someone who considers herself an emerging like scholar, um, activist and researcher. And so, um, I can't highly, you know, I can't speak highly enough of ACPA cause I've just mm-hmm. met some amazing, amazing people, um, been able to travel the country, um, through this leadership position and meeting new folks and networking and just really can staying connected to why I'm in this field. So. Nice. And now how does your work with the network with MR MRN network, uh, connect to your doctoral research? So it's kind of a really close tie in for sure. I mean, um, so it's the multiracial network and a lot of my current and future research will focus on multiracial college students. Um, and so it's a really great tie in like, so for example, um, because of my leadership role currently, we're actually organizing what we're calling an emerging scholars, um, webinar and that's in the works right now. And so what's nice about it is being tied to an entity that's known more or less nationally now between different entities that focus on multiraciality and research and, and practice, um, the other scholars who write about multiracial work, multiracial individuals, communities, they know about us. And so we're trying to really, it helps me not only stay connected to what's current and what's, what's exciting, what's innovative in the field, but it's also um, helpful to just them to understand more about the network and how we try to be an advocate um, for multiraciality broadly. And so it's a great connection and tie with my doctoral research because we have different folks in our team that have different roles. And so one of our scholarship and resources coordinator is always constantly digging up cool new articles. Um, you know, so we stay informed that way. There's others that are focusing more on kind of the social um, planning of our convention and kind of how we outreach more. We have a social media coordinator that does more of the, um, looking at our Facebook or Twitter, um, making sure that our online communities are staying engaged in the work we're doing, whether that's sharing articles or interviewing, um, different people across the country, like similar to kind of how we're having this conversation, but doing this more um, digitally, um, maybe in written form. And so 
it, it ties in so nice. It's like, it's not even work to me. Like I, I just enjoy it because it's fun and it's a passion of mine and it's personal. And I feel like it's all, it's all in one, like connected to what, to what I love to do. That's really great to hear. Like, cause I, <laughs> I constantly hear stories of people who do some of their research and they're just, they feel so bogged down by it and that it's a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit cumbersome. So the fact that you're, you're definitely excited about the work that you do probably makes it a lot easier to do it. Correct. Yeah. And it's been fun to like recruit people to be on our team. You know, uh, when I think about the most recent members that have joined us, I've like met people across the different places, like in New York city, uh, in different convention spaces. And I've been like, hello, hi, how are you? And I like really get them involved and like, all of a sudden they're a new membership, you know, new membership and they have, they're on our team and it's awesome. So like just connecting with them once a month on the phone and over email, it helps me stay connected and excited and not necessarily always, I love my job and what I do, but it also keeps me thinking more about what's new and real and, and current for this topic. So. Nice. And I, 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 I can only imagine that your um, personal identities and your connections uh, to your experiences there also drive a lot of this work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how does that, how do your experiences also influence the way that you work with students on your campus? So in my practice job, so like I have a graduate assistantship role. Um, I don't even consider it a graduate assistantship because I feel like I've been working there for so long and like I, and you I, do so much. I do so much, and I feel like I operate. <laughs> I'm I'm professional in so many ways, and like I know so much more institutionally now than even some of our newest hires that are full time. And so I work there all the time, and I love it. And the people are awesome. So I work in the dean of students' office at UMass Amherst, and um, I work with students in crisis at the university. And so a lot of my role has been doing case management and doing. Um, outreach to students when we get reports from university community members or from the police because we work closely with the university police department. And so my role is to really just be that compassionate, caring person that helps the student understand that they always have options and there's always resources. No matter how dire the situation is, we can help. And so a lot of it is really explaining that to students when they don't realize that there's a lot here that they could take advantage of when it comes to needing support in a time when they just don't know what they're going to do with continuing school, with experiencing something traumatic, um, with dealing with maybe a mental health uh, crisis, um, the loss of a loved one. Like We can help them figure out the best way to hopefully stay enrolled and complete or figuring out if it makes sense to drop a course or two or even withdraw from the university, depending on how significant um, the student's needs are. You know, we just talk them through kind of how to develop an action plan to stay committed to school and be successful and whatever that looks like for that individual student. And so a lot of my job has been just getting to know students one-on-one um, helping them figure out the next steps and then following up with them once they've um, committed to making some connections across campus. And where does your, um, where do your um, experiences and your identities kind of, kind of come into some of the work that you do? Do you, do you allow it to come in with how you work with students or um, 
are you way more professional than me and keep it very separate? <laughs> I feel like it depends. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times it just depends on the situation. I mean, I get to know the students kind of more than they think that I know about them in the sense because I have a general database where I can look up things and kind of see what's going on. But it has come into play specifically for, um, you know, students of color, um, students who identify as multiracial, but it isn't always the first thing I lead with when I meet them. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with just, I tend to talk more about them because in the nature of the work I'm doing with crisis, it's not really the part of the job to share more about me in that time. That might come after maybe the third or fourth meeting with the student, but a lot of times in that initial outreach and they finally come in and meet with me, it's more about, um, yes, this is a little bit about me and my role, but less about who I am as a person and more about how I can help them in this time of need. And then it might switch as I get to know them a little bit more. Um, Like there are some students who I've seen for about two years now, and they know more about my um, maybe more about my identities, but a lot of times in my meetings with students based on this type of work that I'm doing. Now, if I was in a, my diversity position, my diversity office, you know, a couple of years ago, I would say, absolutely. I'm focusing more on that, um, sharing my identity and all of that, all of that encompassed in it. But when it's more about the follow-up crisis and response, um, I do share a little bit, but it's not mainly focused on me. It's it's about them a lot of the times. And if it and if it makes a natural connection for me to talk about my identities, my race, my gender, all of those things as a graduate student, then I I do bring it in. But it's not the first part of the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think what I was trying to get at was not necessarily that it's something that you discuss with them yeah. particularly, but necessarily um, when you might be because I know when we took like student development like classes and um, we, we kind of bring the experiences we have and like perhaps you're talking with the student and you can just feel like, Oh, I can tell that this is what's going on right now. And I just want to like, I want to help them and give them all the answers, but they have to learn as well. (laughs) Do you have any of those moments in the back of your head where you're like, Oh, I mean, yes, because I mean, I could technically evaluate a situation and be like, this is what you can do. If you follow this plan, you'll immediately like be able to kind of figure out and see the light as far as where to go. But a lot of times it's I lead by the students like hmm. like direction. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I it has to do a lot with my like I do a lot of motivational interviewing. I also do just a generally just like I could technically give the student like everything that they need to do, but I can't overwhelm them in that first meeting. Because when you're in crisis, you're not necessarily retaining all the information that no, someone's not saying at all. to you. You know, you're not necessarily wanting to hear every single option. You're yeah. not, you're not really taking it all in. You're listening, but you're not really all the way there. And so in kind of that mind frame, how I work with students is I like to do initial meetings and get a sense of kind of where I can direct them. And then the follow-up meeting is more or less around, okay, so how did that first week go now that we're in week two, kind of Mm -hmm. where are we at? And in that frame, I, you know, I do describe that my work with students, especially in this kind of crisis role and and university resources is a partnership, you know, like I can work so hard for a student, but they have to be willing to work with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. meaning if they, if, 
if the goal is based on the situation that they're going to try counseling and the next time we come and we meet together, they say they're not, they didn't go to counseling, then, you know, it's not necessarily um, me being so disappointed that they didn't go. It's understanding kind of what are the hangups and how can we get you there to help you try something different because the current life experiences that, that they're having isn't fixing it, whatever they're trying to do to, to, you know, to get through. And so, it's tricky work. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I see students making an effort, I'm willing to do more and more for them, like to, oh, for sure. to help them see the light. But it's also part of it is dissonance. It's part of it is giving them some resistance a little bit to not necessarily fixing things. And I'm not a magic worker. I'm not a miracle worker. Although sometimes miracles do happen. <laughs> the work that I do, um, it's really interesting work, but, um, Half a lot of it has to do with the students' investment and kind of them leading where they want to go. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you've you've become quite the advocate for uh, intergroup dialogues. Yeah, and this side of the work that you do is immensely fascinating to me and something that I learned a whole lot about when we were at UMass Amherst together. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you find effective about this approach to uh, to educating folks and discussing? Uh, topics with folks and what challenges do you have arise when you um, facilitate in this way? Let's see. So that's a whole bit, there's a lot there, but let me think. There's a lot there. um, Kind of like how, so I, like I said, Skidmore college was the place that I did a lot of this personal identity work. And in that time when I was a sophomore there, I met uh, Dr. Christy Ford. Uh, She's a sociology professor professor at Skidmore College and now is the director of teaching, I think, teaching leadership. Oh, I should know this. A new center. It's a brand new center at Skidmore College. And um, so she got trained at University of Michigan. And the program on intergroup relations, um, its primary goal is to support student learning and competencies around inter and intergroup relations. Um, conflict, social justice across a wide range of identities, social identities, race, gender, sexuality, social class, religion, and nationality. And I had to read that because um, it's important to understand it, it, it broadly talks uh, and really helps the student and the person who trains themselves in this intergroup dialogue pedagogy is to really help them understand those concepts of power, privilege, and oppression in the U.S. context and kind of how um, you can learn in structured small intergroup uh, interactions between different social identity groups and process knowledge and in co-learning um, when you are trained by uh, peer facilitators. And so in the spaces that you do, that you either participate in intergroup dialogue or maybe you're facilitating an intergroup dialogue, there are very specific gui- guidelines and boundaries and all of that sets up the tone for the type of dialogue that you have. And so there's a large, you know, growing body of research on this topic. And, you know, as someone who started off first by learning about just different social identities, I had to really learn the difference between gender and sexual orientation, you know, and understanding the nuances and the difference versus what, you know, the differences between race and nationality and language and ability, which ability has to do with a being able-bodied and not having um, a disability, Um, and that could be both physical or mental. And so a mental disability. And so all of these things I had to interrogate and do a lot of self-reflection on 
to understand what social identities I hold and how maybe those do change over time. And so that is the foundation for intergroup dialogue work, where if you know more about who you are and what social identities you hold, that influences how much power you have, how much privilege you have, and how much um, awareness and how much you recognize how your body, yourself, um, influences the people around you in different institutional settings, in different um, familial settings with family, um, in different social settings. And, and that, in, that also intersects it's with, with social class, you know, whether, you know, you were, uh, grew up in the working class community and then eventually with your education moved your way up to being more middle class. And so all of these nuances, it's so different, but that is like the core of understanding these different layers. And then each individual person you meet has so many different social identities and different spectrums that they fall under, whether they're aware of it or not. You know, when you learn about intergroup dialogue, you actually gain this language to be able to talk about it. Yeah, it seems like it. And so like every single person has a different uh, spectrum on which they fall. And so depending on where they're at, they have different privilege, power, and oppression, which we would call like target and agent identities. And so you learn all about these different concepts. You learn about um, how to facilitate and during conflict. You learn how to have people reflect and listen more. You're more of an active listener. You know, you um, all these skill sets really, when I went through the program, trained me in an awesome way to be able to not just think about myself all the time, but how think about how others navigate the world. And so that's a lot about the concept. And there's a new book that I would, I'd love to plug actually, because it just got published. Um, Please do. In July. And it's called Facilitating Change Through Intergroup Dialogue, Social Justice Advocacy and Practice. And it's edited by my mentor, Christy Ford. And um, she put together this book after a panel that happened two years ago at Skidmore College for the Northeastern Intergroup Dialogue Conference. And I was on that panel, which was awesome, with a friend of mine, um, with four friends that were, we were all part of the intergroup dialogue program at Skidmore College. And, and um, this developed, eventually turned into a book, which is also um, connected to Christy Ford's, Dr. Christy Ford's research. And everyone who was on the panel has a chapter in the book. And so I have more of a, I have a chapter in the book that talks a little bit more about my personal life, similar to what we're mm. talking about today. And then um, towards the end of the book, uh, my friend Stephen Bissonnette and I, we uh, wrote a, uh, an afterword about the future of intergroup dialogue and kind of where it goes. And, and we see it not necessarily always sitting within higher education institutions where we learn about this, but actually in, in the corporate sphere and other ways that we could try to tie it in and connect it more. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk so much more. This would be a whole other podcast, yeah. not just intergroup dialogue, but I can't speak highly enough of it. I think that every higher ed institution should have an intergroup dialogue program, um, because no one is touching race at all, and much less talking about multiraciality, but no one's talking about race, privilege, power, oppression. And this is the best way to do it when you have an intergroup dialogue or intergroup relations program. It's the curriculum is out there. The training is there. You've got a national group of folks that are connected. And uh, honestly, it's the best way, I think, to have college students really contend with this idea of, of who they are and why they're here 
and what they're about in life and, and, and see how it all ties in to the bigger, broader, humane world we live in. Wow. Like, Victoria drops so much knowledge and I just, I can't say much more after, after she drops those things, but we're going to get, take a quick break here and I'm going to take a quick music break. We're going to hear some tunes brought to you by our friends at Sounds and Tones Records all the way in North Adams, Massachusetts. This is a Western mass podcast with Victoria being at UMass Amherst. And uh, Sounds and Tones being out of Western Mass as well. I thought I'd bring you some Western Mass tunes. You're going to hear the song San Francisco Bay by Izzy Helltie off of the album His Izzy Helltie and The Secret Creature. And you can hear these tunes on soundsandtonesrecords.com, buy the CD, buy the digital, and yeah, li- listen up. Here we go. All right. Here is San Francisco Bay by Izzy Hilltide. I found my soul in San Francisco Bay. And I told my sister that I was going away. And I called my friend, said that I wasn't coming home Because I found my love and she keeps me on the open road So take me to your river now Promise I won't let you drown Just hold me tight Cause I would cross a thousand roads Just to be the one you chose tonight Sunsets in the west when I close my eyes. I promised myself that I wouldn't come undone when the walls came. Covered in blood And I called my friend Said that I wasn't coming home Because I murdered the man Who said I'm stuck living my life all alone Yeah. 
Check it out at soundsandtoadsrecords.com. Get the CD, get the digital, put it in your ear holes, and listen to the whole darn thing. All right, let's finish up this conversation with Victoria Mullaney. Now, you're almost done with... uh, Sorry, I'm just going to start over. So, are you ready to be done with your doctoral work or what? (laughs) Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I say that laughingly because I'm ready to be moving on to the next phase of my doctoral education. And so, um, I just took all of my credits, my class doctoral courses. And so that was 15 classes. So that was a lot. Um, and that was two years of straight class all the time. And I'm very grateful that I've survived and learned a ton more as far as research how to do research, um, applying and understanding the research process. It's a whole new language you had to learn, really, and a whole new skill set and brain area that I had to grow, you know, as far as, like, research questions and looking at qualitative work versus quantitative work and mixed methods and all of these different ways you could think about answering a, a question or multiple questions. And so... I'm definitely ready for the next phase, and that that that's towards um, completing my comprehensive exams. So I wrote those this summer. I'm defending my comprehensive exams this Wednesday, which is I'm so looking forward to. Um, when I reach that part of my degree, I would be considered a PhD candidate versus a doctoral student, and so that's a different title too, and it's also yeah. a, sig- a, a signifier to anyone else in this world of doctoral studies that the individual or the student is actually ready to start writing their dissertation. And so for me, um, that's exciting because that's the whole point you get to this doctoral degree is to get to that dissertation, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the next biggest and longest hurdle to come is is the dissertation. And so I'm ready for, for the coursework to be officially like green lighted and checked and so will the comprehensive exams like I'm so ready for that and now I won't be taking classes full-time but I'll be working on my dissertation full-time and so I'm excited about that new change um so that's that's just like meaning signifying progress signifying I'm moving forward with the degree um and and for for anyone who's contemplating um starting a doctoral program my advice is really just to be very intentional about what you want out of your experience because 
the the difference I, I was actually talking to someone about this last week as students were moving in and, and new graduate students were were beginning their time here at UMass and you know I said the difference between a master's program and a doctoral program is kind of two things so as a master's student you really were a consumer consumer of research uh, you were basically reading a ton writing a ton but you're ba- you're like a lot of times agreeing and disagreeing in some ways with what's currently out there in the, in the research and literature. And you have questions, of course, about kind of what you're seeing and have some ideas for improvement, right? Mm-hmm. As a master's student, but as a doctoral student, not only do you do all of that, you're also creating knowledge. You are learning how to create knowledge in the larger world. So, and you're putting out your opinions and your views in the hopes that you are bettering the community that you're studying, right? Hmm. And not harming it. Um, and so the, the way in which I think a lot about the, the doctoral studies and the doctoral work is it gives me a whole new set of privilege and power in this role when I finally get that degree to impact several communities, whether that's the multiracial community, which I definitely hope to continue obviously doing all that work that I love so much in it. And personally, it, it enriches my personal questions about my life experience and kind of the community moving forward. But, you know, it's in doctoral experience is really all about you. And it is about what you want out of the experience. So it's different when you're in a master's students, you're really following that, that course checking off, okay, I got to do this requirement, I got to do that. But when you're at the doctoral level, you guess you got to do these classes, but it's really about what do you want out of the experience? And Mm. you have to be able to tell your advisor, like, I want to go to this conference, and here's how I'm going to make it happen. Your professor isn't going to, or your advisor isn't necessarily going to give you that opportunity. You have to work for it and name it and go after it. And so as a master's student, you know, you might say, oh, I want to go to this conference, and I want to experience it. But you might be listening more and being a participant. As a doc student, you're actually out there presenting your ideas, getting feedback, networking with other professors, and trying to get a sense of kind of like, how can we work together? Um, and so there's actually a collaboration that I met a friend of mine. Her name's Nicole Belisle. She's out at um, San Diego State, and um, the Claremont Colleges have a joint doctoral program. And, and we, her and I met at a conference um, in Texas, in Fort Worth, over the summer. And now we're trying to collaborate on a project together. So we wouldn't do that as master's students per se as much. We'll be doing more research now, and so that's fun to like collaborate research-wise um, for me. And it's a lot of what we try to do in the doctoral level. So, yeah. Um, it's good that you, you kind of covered everything I was going to ask because I'm going to be considering uh, doctoral programs in the near future. So I was sheepishly trying to get any advice and I knew you'd give me the, you'd deliver on the goods. Yeah. Uh, because I think I trust you more than any of my academic friends these days. <laughs> <laughs> and I would also say, um, wherever you decide to go, whether that's someplace in Mass or somewhere else, like you really want to look at the funding packages, what they offer to you. Oh, yes. Um, as a doctoral student, you should not, I repeat this, you should not be paying for your PhD. And yeah. now some people may say, Oh, that's just some snootiness talking there. She doesn't really know. No, I'm serious because PhD programs, they admit small numbers. I mean, even our program only admitted, I believe, two or three students this this year. And they're super selective because you sh- the school should be funding you, meaning mm-hmm. paying for your credits, um, 
ideally giving you a stipend and health insurance and benefits to be able to train you. So you work and you're, ment you're mentored by faculty who have a developed invested interest in you to put you out into the world afterwards and represent your place where you got this doctorate from for your lifetime, right? And so when you have a place that's saying, oh, you have to pay us, like, to me, that's weird. Like, it doesn't, it's not right. Like, you should not be paying for your doctorate. I completely 100% agree. And I'm thankful in working uh, for UMass Boston as a professional, um, I'm able to take any of the state schools class, like graduate classes for free. So it'll, yeah. So that as long as I can that. find a program. <laughs> right. So it's about finding the right program fit. It's about finding the right faculty to want to work with you because it has to be a fit. And there's there are some students who don't have that fit and they're not necessarily having the greatest time in their graduate educational experience. You know, this should be something that, yes, is challenging. Yes, you could be frustrated at times with lots of people that it's normal to be like, why am I in grad school still? And like, you know, why, uh, why do I, why do I do this? Or why do I want to do this? And it's normal to question it, but like you should have equal investment in this process from your mm -hmm. faculty. It should be a, um, full circle, full commitment on all parts. When you are more overcommitted than your faculty and invested in teaching you, then there's something wrong there. Same thing with the funding and all of that. Like it needs to all come together. Hmm. You're speaking to my soul. I yeah. love it. Come now, so. now to end this on on one of my big picture questions, uh, there's always way too much in this question. The last question always has way too much. But where where do we go from kind of where we are now in terms of supporting multiracial students through college, especially in today's climate with like a reinvigoration of racial prejudice, white nationalism swirling around, what are your suggestions um, that, that you think would help professionals and just students alike? So I'm glad you, you gave me some questions in advance. This was one of them that I felt like I had to like look up a little bit more and be more reflective of my comment and response to this. And so I'm going to be citing a couple of people. So these aren't exactly my ideas, but I a hundred percent agree with these folks. And so I love, I love it. You're such a nerd. Yeah. Well, I, to, I mean, it's part of it is I agree with them. And I also think that there's this fine line. And so, um, so in, within multiracial college students, the multiracial community, there's this other, there's this growing group of what's called critical mixed race studies. And, that's connected to thinking about this emerging idea of multiracial consciousness and people really understanding that when you think about being an American, it's not necessarily claiming one racial group. It's claiming all of who you are, right? Not fracturing or saying, you know, I'm one fourth this and I'm a half this and I'm a quarter this, you know, it's, it's looking at the full sense of who you are fully and not in halves or holes or, or pieces. And so critical mixed race studies as an entity and as a group. And I encourage you to look them up because they have a conference every year. This year, it's going to be at University of Maryland College Park. So critical mixed race studies has this idea about fulfilling the promise of education that transgresses boundaries and inspires critical thinking and dismantles our hierarchies about race and how we move about this world. And all of this 
this scholarly talk is connected to this idea of social justice, self-determination, transnational solidarity, meaning amongst transnationally, meaning different countries, different people, cross-ethnic groups. It's all connected to this idea of what Andrew Jolivet, who's a professor at San Francisco State University, calls radical love. And I'm really, really interested in this idea of radical love. And I have to give a nod to my friend, Heather Liu, who actually talked more about this at um, ACPA's conference. Um, and she also spoke about it at the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. But Andrew Jolivet um, defines radical love as being vulnerable and not being afraid to speak out about issues that may not have a direct impact on us on a daily basis. And radical love is caring enough to admit when we are wrong and to admit mistakes. Radical love should ask us, how does this work in which we are engaged help to build respectful relationships between ourselves and the others involved in social justice movements? Radical love asks us if we are being responsible and fulfilling our individual roles and obligations and the other participants in the struggle for social justice and human rights, but more specifically in radical love and critical mixed race studies means asking ourselves if what we are contributing is giving back to the community and is strengthening the relationship of all of us involved in this process. And so the goal behind some of these white nationalist supremacist groups is to really tear down any love that we have in this world, you know, tear down that sense of humanity and human rights and social justice. And so I 100% agree with what I was just reading from Andrew Jolivet's sense of radical love is what we do need, um, you know, to stay connected, to understand that we're not alone, um, to understand that we all have been colonized, you know, and we do not live in a post-racial society. You know, race in the U.S. context is everything. I mean, we don't often talk about it as much, but that is the worst thing we're doing because we aren't having those conversations to understand the history behind it all, you know, and mixed people, multiracial people have always been here. We've always been here. We just haven't been identified as part of the racial conversation and discourse until uh, maybe about 2000 when we actually could claim more than one race on the U.S. Census. And even still, the way in which the government categorizes us isn't even for even it's, it's not even, even it's not done right. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make and sense. I cannot believe it's only been since like, 2000, since 2000. I mean, there's, there's that's only one, two census, two censuses. Sensei. Yeah. Wow. They can only compare. Yeah. Since 2000 and 2010. And even then it's not hundred percent accurate because what the government does, even if I'm in school and I say that my child is multiracial and I check, let's say four racial boxes to identify them, they will count the, the child or the student as part of the darkest group that they claim. Really? Yeah. And that's based on something I read with Anne Morning. She's a professor at NYU in sociology. Huh. And so there is no, um, what ends up happening is when people check more than one box, the statisticians don't want to take the time to disaggregate the data. They don't want to look. They, it's a nightmare for them to consider being like, well, how do I classify someone who checks Asian, white, uh, black and Native American? They have to create a whole separate category when they do the data analysis and put them in one group, in one pot. 
Mm -hmm. And they have to separate everybody else who does different ways of, of talking about themselves. And it takes a long time. But I, I argue as someone who's really invested in this work and as a person, like, I don't want to be just lumped into one group anyways, when you allow me the choice to, to select multiple things, you're just putting me in one box anyways, behind the scenes. So there's, there's a whole lot more to talk about when it comes to it. And, and I don't think enough people understand like the history around multiracial Americans, you know, 1967 was when the U.S. Supreme Court decided with Richard and Mildred Loving versus the state of Virginia that you could marry interracially legally. Yeah. Prior, prior to 67 in this country, you know, multiple states in the South and even in the North, it was illegal to marry interracially because of the anti-miscegenation laws. And miscegenation, that term is around mixing they wanted to keep the races pure, meaning black, white, and that was it. That was the binary that we considerably and consistently still live in today, is the binary. So, so it con continues to shape everything, policy, how we talk about race in, in the U.S. context and also in programming. You know, you don't really see much programming on college campuses as much, as often, about intersectionality, mm -hmm. about multiracial students who transgress interfaith relationships just by being themselves, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, interracial, all of these, all these things. So it's not clean and, and clear cut. It's very complicated. Oh, for sure. Like none of this is easy. None of this is clean. Um, did you get to see the loving movie? I did not get to see it. Oh yes, I did. I've seen it multiple times. Um, you like it? Yes, we at the Multiracial Network, MRN, we plugged that film, Oliver, and then the Focus Films actually sent us some t-shirts that we used at the last convention. We gave them out um, to members. Uh, so it was, a, it was a great experience. And one of our members, um, leadership team members, in, lives in New York. He got to go to the premiere, too. Um, oh, very cool. At a, at a local uh, movie theater that was showing it. Very he cool. He didn't get to meet the stars, but he got to to be you know let in for a free viewing and all that stuff so that was cool nice yeah. okay let's finish this up with a quick lightning round some of your favorite things in the world i just want to learn a little bit more sure and then we'll close this out okay oh. favorite food favorite food oh mm -hmm. man that's hard i have multiple favorite foods but i guess i'll i love trini food so trinidadian food so that's a lot of things but Caribbean, Trinidadian food, all-encompassing favorite food. <laughs> nice. Have that uh, cultural influence from the start paying off with yep. all that food. Well, I guess it, I, if anything, if if not for nothing, I am uh, part Mexican and my favorite food is Mexican food. So there we go. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, favorite color. Favorite color, it's changed over time. Initially, when I grew up, it was pink, and now okay. I love navy. Navy? Mm-hmm. Navy blue. Yeah. Nice. Uh, what about your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Oh. Again, lots of answers, but for, like, romantic, like, love, I love The Notebook. Oh, of course. My favorite. Classic. What about uh, a favorite book of yours currently, maybe even of all time? Ooh, a favorite book? Um, 
I feel like it depends on the genre, but... Well, hit me with a couple if you want. Okay, I'm like, now I'm looking at my bookshelf because I need some inspiration on which ones to talk about. Um, when it comes to higher education, one of my favorites was actually reading um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that's not a oh, surprise. Yeah. Um, not a surprise based on our background and our master's program. No. Definitely one of my favorites. Um, and if you can get through it, which I feel like after multiple reads, it's so much easier to, to digest now. It's a lot um, of a book. It's a lot of a book, but you could do it, is what I say. Um, mm -hmm. And, oh man, I don't know. There's a lot, but that I'll just go with that for now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Um, what about maybe a favorite music artist, maybe an album that you enjoy? Um, well, for classical, I really love Mozart, which is a nerd thing too, but I really it's love okay. music. Um, so I got some Mozart records in particular. Um, yes, Mozart. And, um, when it comes to kind of current music, uh, I just like, I listen to a lot of things, but, um, <clears throat> you just saw Gaga. I did I see Gaga. I do. I really do love Lady Gaga. She's awesome. I, I remember. I remember how stoked you were about that gig. So, yeah. <laughs> Lady Gaga is awesome. <laughs> nice. All right, and now finally, I want you to dig deep into your classical ballet days. And what is your favorite ballet? Swan Lake. Hands. There we go. A yeah. classic. Yeah. And did you like Black Swan? I did like Black Swan. It was really, really interesting. And behind the scenes, learning more about who were the dancers behind um, some of the, the parts of the ballet. Because Natalie Portman, she did train, obviously, to do her work. But um, there is also a dancer named Sarah Lane who did a lot of the footwork and stuff. Because it, okay. it, is, it is hard to just pick it up like that if you don't know anything about ballet. Years and years and years of training. So. Oh, for sure. And from a standpoint of just loving i love darren aronofsky's movies because yeah. he makes like the some of the bleakest things still so beautiful and mm -hmm. it was one of those kinds of movies where you're like this is gonna take a turn and i'm just ready for it at any moment <laughs> and a fun fact if you ever go to new york and go to the um museum of the moving image you can see uh her legs like her legs that turn into like feathers and she gets kind of she's like dying at the end yeah. but you see her like prosthetic legs in this case at the museum of the moving image and it was so cool i saw it a couple of weeks ago during the summer wow i want to see that now holy crap and multiple and multiple other things i mean that was just one of them but like mrs doubtfire like robin williams's um body costume and face and stuff it was oh yeah that's a whole thing I, th I think i've seen the prosthetics and stuff they use for that all right, Victoria, thank you so much for spending your evening with me. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for letting me chat. <laughs> yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, and I uh, cannot wait to see you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Craig. Well, there you have it. There you go. We did it again. Another episode completed. I'm proud of us. I'm thankful for Victoria's friendship and Victoria's knowledge, spreading it with us 
here today on on the podcast. I'm really thankful for her spending her, her time with me and chatting with me about some topics that aren't really discussed a whole lot in the realm of education and with the changing demographics of the world, they need to be discussed. So if you want to get in touch with Victoria, you can find her on Twitter at vmalini one Malini is spelled M-A-L-A-N-E-Y. vmalini one Reach out. Engage. She has a, a endless well of knowledge. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Share it with someone. Uh, spread the word about the Edgy Punks podcast. Always looking for new folks to chat with. Uh, next week, I already recorded next week's re- uh, conversation, and it is a doozy. I'm so excited to share it with you all. Uh, so, yeah, find us on social media at EduPunksPod, E-D-U-P-U-N-X-Pod, or follow me uh, at Craig Bidditman, C-R-I-G-B-I-D-I-D-M-A-N. I'm all over Twitter and Instagram. This month, we're doing a September vinyl challenge, so that's primary uh, the primary use of my Instagram right now. Outside of that, uh, you can check out more of what I do at craigbideman.com. And if you liked the music you heard today, visit soundsandtonesrecords.com for more music. And I'm going to leave y'all with uh, the song uh, Watch the World Go By by Darling Valley. You've already heard little bits of it uh, throughout the episode, and you're going to hear the end of it now. Uh, And until next week, let's get to work. With our heads up in the clouds, spend the best days of our lives. When the sky comes falling down, we watch the world go by. Still, I can't complain if the love that I get is more. Till dawn like young love, baby, but life goes on, it goes on.